Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. about uh, the voting machine anomalies that show that the votes seem to be spreading irrationally between Trump and Biden. And of course, this is only in uh, Democrat, democratically controlled precincts where the Democrats are controlling the vote county. And at the same time, they were locking out vote watchers, uh, which is they have a legal right to have both Republican and Democrats there in the presence of uh, uh, watching for the votes. The, the idea of why would anybody be barring somebody, because they would want to be able to prove that this was a legitimate vote. So you would want vote watchers from both parties watching the counting of the votes to make sure that there was no question as to the rightful outcome of the vote. Yet, they were doing just the opposite. They were blocking them, making them stand hundreds of feet away so that they could not tell whether or not the votes are being properly counted. And uh, that is that is just completely irrational if you want people to actually believe that your votes are being counted correctly. Then there is the machines that were creating the images of a literally a uh, ballot with your votes recorded on that. And the machine would then count the votes and send them off through the software to be added up in a decimal figure. Uh, somewhere, which I, is amazing, one man, one vote, why do you have to have decimals? There should be no decimals involved. It's one man, one vote. But of course, in order to create certain algorithms, you might want that so that you can actually, every so often, if one person was getting too much votes, you would steal a vote and move it over into the, the column of the opposing individual. And, uh, so anyway, that's, that's what they seem to be doing, and when they did the algorithms to test how the votes were being counted, that's what it showed up, and it showed the more Trump votes he got, the less it there was an actual turning down of the system so that the votes were going the other way. And they did this several different ways of measuring the way in which the votes were coming in, and they were showing a decided arc, that the votes actually went in an arc shape for the Democratic candidate uh, going up while it went in a down for the Republican candidate, even in Republican precincts. That doesn't make any sense. It just is just completely unacceptable to imagine that that is actually what was taking place. But proof, well, you would have to subpoena the software and take a look at the software. But the really damning question here, without out looking at without looking at the software and the original uh, material, you know, the original programming of that software, the original uh, source code, how would you know that? Uh, the question is: is that the law requires that for 22 months you have to keep any records that generated in the voting, and that's a federal law, so it's in every single state. But they weren't doing that. Somebody had gone into the pro, the original uh, factory-based programming of these voting machines and changed the command to save those electronic ballots, and so they could actually print out hard copies of the electronic ballot, which is what they really should do, is that when you go in and vote, you should get an electronic hard copy of your vote. You tear off a tab that gives you a record of how you voted, and then you can keep that for your records, and then the other one goes into a pile so that if there is a question about the validity of the count coming through the software you can go back and count the hard copies. They will all be there, just stacked right up. 
They're not even saving the digital account, the digital voting sheet. They will erase it, even though they're required to keep a record for 22 months. Why? Why would anybody do that? And how would anybody know how to do that? Somebody had to go to each of these individual precincts where these voting machines are and tell the people how to reset it against factory settings so that there would be no verifiable record of the votes being taken. And so it looks like there's absolute voter fraud going on in the voting procedures of the United States to depict their candidate. Now, we know of that are seeking the kingdom of God and the righteousness of God, which is what we're told to do as Christians, there is no salvation in getting either one of these candidates elected. But we are also not to bear false witness. And I will have to bear witness that it appears that the election this time is an absolute sham. Not that it wasn't an absolute sham in many of the years past. What's interesting, and we will see in the future, where both you know, the Republicans bring this up and point out these errors. Right now, the Democrats are controlling these states, or at least these precincts that are doing this. In some of the precincts where they didn't have machines, you don't see the same pattern. You only see it where there's the machine in a democratically controlled precinct that was blocking vote watchers, licensed vote. You have to become a licensed vote watcher. Just not anybody can go in there. They have to, you know, go through orientation and, and get licensed to come in and be observers to make sure that, you know, the Democrats can put in an observer, Republicans can put in an observer, and they're both there to make sure that everything is on the up and up. They were blocking them. Why would you do that? Now, the other interesting thing is why wouldn't the media be outraged on CNN, NBC, ABC, all these media outlets should be outraged because they know that if you block these vote watchers from observing, it will put the vote count in jeopardy. They would not want, if they were really going to be honest about this, they would not want to block. They would want to prove that their candidate was literally getting all the votes that they got. And there is no question about whether or not the vote was honest. They would want that testimony to be there. Instead, they were blocking them, pushing them out, getting court orders that they could be in there, and then moving the table way away so that they could not see what was going on. It is it is absolutely an outrage, but it, the greatest outrage is the media is not outraged. Most of the media is not outraged. They're not even reporting it. They're keeping it quiet. They're poo-pooing it like, so what if they kept these court watchers out? The vote is still a vote. No, the vote is not a vote. That's why you always, now I say court watchers, vote watchers, uh, have been around for a long time. There's cases in America where people have actually taken up arms because they knew that the votes were being tampered with by the local government, by the police department. And they actually opened up the armory and had the shootout to guard the voting boxes from absolute corruption in fairly small towns. This has taken place. And so, yeah, it, it, it seems like there's total corruption. And of course, like I said this morning, corruption, uh, is like an iceberg. What you see is not nearly what you're getting. You see very little of the actual iceberg. Only a little bit sticks up. And, well, we're seeing stuff stick up, and we're not seeing anybody do anything about it accordingly. So what is the deal? And uh, so anyway, we did quite a bit on that, but we talked about a lot of other things. So anyway, now I'm trying to get uh, the recording. I seem to be back in the station. <laughs> and let's see. This is going to work. Yep, it's working. I have no idea what our glitch was. So anyway, so we did that little review of this morning, and now we're going to talk about this afternoon. We're going to talk a little bit about Shiva, Dr. Shiva, who and, and his team is the one we're kind of uncovering that, and a lot of these other things are very obvious. Any any decent reporter should say, why aren't you letting 
vote watchers and uh, to guarantee that the vote is honest. Wouldn't you want to be able to have that testimony and proof? No. And they they make it like, there's no reason for that. These are all honest people. And we know for centuries people have been cheating on votes in all sorts of ways. And so that's why you have laws that make it so that you can have people in there watching the vote. Now, in the kingdom, we have a vote. You get to vote for one minister. You have one vote, and what you're doing is voting if that minister is going to be allowed to be your minister. You can't vote for that minister to be the minister of other people. You can only vote to have the minister minister to you. Because the kingdom of God is self-organizing. Now, hopefully, it's self-organizing with the leading of the Holy Spirit in each individual because the true leader of the kingdom of God is the Holy Spirit. So, Christ commanded, this is the only law and rule that we have is what Christ commanded. And he said, keep the commandments, of course. But he also said, sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. Organize yourselves in that way. And the way you do that is you choose a minister. That's your one vote. But you're just picking a servant. You're not giving him any power over you. You, uh, on a day-to-day basis, will give him power over what you wanted to contribute to the rest of the kingdom. The rest of the people in the network of Christ. In the free assembly of the congregations of the Lord. That's what the kingdom of God was. Now, the Pharisees had decided to go off and do it a different way. They tried to set up a system of Corbin through Herod. Where the people signed up and they had to pay in and they could actually be penalized by certain tax collectors like Malachi and, and Gabi who would penalize them for not paying in their fair share. And this was a system of Corbin that was making the word of God to none effect. Their sacrifice, Corbin is just sacrifice. It was a system of sacrifice that made the word of God to none effect because it was not based on charity, was not based on free will offerings as it we were told in the Old Testament or charity as we were told in the New Testament, as John the Baptist told us. Those of you who have, share with those that don't have enough. And you do it through this tens, hundreds, and thousands. And that's what... That's the way the Essenes were set up. That's the way John the Baptist was setting it up. That's the way Christ commanded that we set it up. But it's not the way the modern church is doing. The way the modern church takes care of the needy of their society is they send them to men who exercise authority. So the modern church is totally an apostasy. And we were pointing out that people say, oh, what makes us Christians is our belief in the Trinity or, or, or uh, what makes us Christians is our belief that Jesus is God or what makes us Christians is that we say, Lord, Lord. But that's not what makes us Christians. The makes us Christians, as James said, is that we're doers of the word. And the doers of the word are the ones who take care of one another through faith, hope, and charity. If you had that kind of system... In your religious practices, in your religious rituals, in your religious rites, that's what these rites and rituals are. You take What makes a Christian a Christian is that he takes care of the needy through free will offerings, through charity, through love, based on the leading of the Holy Spirit in his own heart and mind as God writes upon his heart and mind. That is what Christianity is. Christianity is not theology. It's not catechism. It's not memorization. It's not repetition of words. Christianity is being a doer of the word and being a follower of Christ. Following the way of Christ. That's what Christianity is. If we were doing that, we would have the basis of a free society. Because it's moral to take care of the needy of your society through free will offerings. It is immoral, even amoral, to take care of the needy of your society through forced offerings. Which is what you have started to do. And so, anyway, uh, I think it's the Hoover Institute. uh, Steve Forbes wrote an article, The Moral Basis of a Free Society, in which he states, when the government of China tells the people they can read state-run newspapers but not print and distribute Bibles, imprisoning and torturing dissenters, or have one child or and not two, forcing women to have abortions, watch state television but not listen to Radio Free Asia, 
jamming broadcasts and signaling and threatening students, that is not freedom. Well, that's easy to say that that is not freedom. But what is freedom? Are you free? Uh, do you know what freedom is? Uh, how, how can a widely pluralistic society sustain freedom without degenerating into chaos? What is the moral basis of a free society? You have to have some sort of moral fabric, the warp and weft of society, weaving the people together so that they can operate as one without binding. See, now the world operates as one out of many one. We have e pluribus unum, which is a good idea. But by what means do you make the many one? Do you incorporate everybody into a corporation? Because that's what a corporation is. Two or more people gathered together as if they were one person. That's e pluribus unum. Or are you e pluribus union, unum based on the principles of Christ? Because the principles of Christ is that we don't exercise authority one over the other. We stop the taking of oaths. We do not pledge our allegiance to an individual or to a group or to an institution. We pledge our allegiance to this invisible God. That is, we call him God because he knows all, sees all, and is truth, and is righteousness. That's what God is by definition. Now, what that looks like, that may be debatable, but the reality of it is truth is truth. Right is right. Righteousness is righteousness. We may have different opinions about what is righteous, but that's what life is all about, to seek the righteousness of God. And that's the command of Christ. To seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So what is the moral basis of a free society? Today, citizens and leaders in every nation are looking to America for an answer to these questions. Well, that's what... Mr. Forbes says, but that may not actually be true. They're not all looking to the United States. And good good reason, because the United States is not really supplying an answer. Based on what I've seen over the last nine months or last nine years even, the United States is taking a, a serious turn away from what it should be. Now, there are people in the United States that are trying to turn back, trying to have sort of a revival of truth. And as we, we'll take a look at history a little bit if we have time to see how this revival of truth comes about from time to time. Because this pendulum of the hearts of man seems to swing back and forth, dragging the lukewarm with it one way or the other. Hopefully the lukewarm warm up a little bit on that back approach but we've been going one way for a long time and now we've got to come back so are you ready to come back in righteousness no nation after all has ever enjoyed the status of america does today well that's that's somewhat true although america is slipping from what it once was it doesn't know what made america great the greatest empire of history were but regional affairs compared to what America is. Today, America is truly the world's only superpower. Well, no, that's not. And I'm reading this out of his article. I understand what he's saying, and I don't disagree with his intent. But the real superpower is the kingdom of God. You want to bet on that group, the kingdom of God. And in order to do that, you have to repent, think differently, and seek that kingdom and the righteousness of that kingdom. Now, Forbes asked the question, can a free uh, society survive the collapse of the two-parent family, where one-third of the children are born into homes without fathers? Can a free society long endure a culture in which newborn babies have been thrown into the trash dumpster and young people have doubled their rate of heroin use in a single year. Like that's going to increase now in Oregon because everybody gets to own heroin. Everybody gets to have meth. Everybody gets to have cocaine on the street. 
Now, personally, I don't think those things should have been illegal. And you could have done away with the pervasiveness of that simply by doing away with the welfare state. Because you can't survive long without a welfare state supporting you if you're going to be a drug addict. You're going to die really quick. And people are going to see you die and they're going to say, I don't want that. Because you're going to die right out in the open on the streets because you're not going to be accepted anywhere. Because you've turned over your charity, which is not real charity, your welfare system to men who exercise authority because you've abandoned the way of Christ. All the people out there claiming to be Christians don't take care of the needy of their society through faith, hope, and charity. They take care of 90% of their congregation through force, fear, and fealty, and which is the Corbin of the Pharisees that was making the word of God to none effect. So, can a free society long endure a culture in which the newborn babies are dumped into dumpsters? Uh, can it long endure? Now, it's saying that the third, uh, a third of the families are single-parent families. In the black community, three-quarters of the families, almost three-quarters of the family, are single-parent families. Three-quarters of the children born are born into single-parent families. And you can see what is happening to the black community. It's not because they're black. It's because they've left the moral foundation of society and they have been encouraged to do it by things like the war on poverty etc who rewarded you for getting rid of the man in the household and so the men grow up this has gone on for now since the 60s and even longer so what's happened you know it actually started way back in the 20s and 30s but what's happened is that the young men grow up and don't even know what it is to be a father so it's it's magnifying itself. But, of course, that's the swing of the pendulum. And now it's going to have to swing back. And and we see that in some of the black community. And hopefully we'll see that in the 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 rest of the community. And there shouldn't be a black and Asian and, and white community. There should be only community. And in the kingdom of God, they're very specific to say that. There is no more Greek or Jew. There's only those who seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. George Washington once wrote, It is impossible to account for the creation of the universe without the agency of a supreme being. And it is impossible to govern the universe without the aid of that supreme being. What that supreme being represents is the truth. Again, by definition, God's opinion of the truth is the truth. You could say, by definition, the truth by definition, is God's opinion. If there is an intelligent design in the universe, and we call that source of intelligence, just like the source code of creation, is God, then God is representing the truth of our creation. And so, since God created us to be free, with a few exceptions... You know, he gave us a command to dress it and keep it. He gave us a command, uh, you know, well, we see in the Ten Commandments, actually, from the beginning, the Ten Commandments existed, but they just weren't itemized. There's really only two commandments, and it's to love God and to love thy neighbor as thyself. And so those, all the other commandments are based on those two commandments. If you go back to ancient Egypt, about the time that Moses was actually in Egypt, there was the laws of, was it Marat? And there were about 64, 65 of those laws. If you go down and read them, it is the Ten Commandments for the most part, is those laws. Except for instead of summarizing, thou shalt not steal, uh, it says, Thou shalt not steal thy neighbor's goat, thou neighbor's cow, thou neighbor's this, thou neighbor's that. And so they get up to 64. But just to say, Thou shalt not steal, we've got all those covered. and We can reduce, you know, take off 10 of those 64 uh, laws. And we can do the same thing with, Thou shalt not covet, and thou shalt not bear false witness. It, it's it's a summary. But you can summarize the 10 with, Thou shall love God, which is this creative power, creative influence, this truth. You have to love the truth. 
with all your heart, mind, and soul. That's the only way to find the whole truth is to love the whole truth. Be willing to accept not only the truth that is easy for us to accept, but the truth that is sometimes hard for us to accept, which is that we're not really saved. We are in need of repentance, and we need to turn around and go the other way. Can the liberties of a nation be sure when we remove their only firm basis, a conviction in the minds of the people that their liberties are the gift of God? Not the gift of government. That's Thomas Jefferson. Not the gift of government, but the gift of God. And so we need to understand what they're talking about when they're talking about this idea of rights. They're not granted by government. They're granted by God. Now, the rights that the government has is granted by us. Some of that was granted by the states when they ratified the Constitution and acquiesced to the Constitution they gave some of the power that was vested in the states in the hand of the federal government. But the people were not we the people at that time. It was we the people of the states who became a part of the United States made the United States a reality. Most of the citizens in America were not citizens of the United States. They were citizens of the individual states or just inhabitants in the individual states. It wasn't until after the the Civil War that we became citizens of the United States. But then, through the process from the 1860s and 1910 and 1920, 1933, we began to apply to the government for more and more benefits. And we go through this I'm actually going to be on a program next week on Tuesday at 6. Brandon Sibley is going to try to interview me if the, if our internet holds up. <laughs> we're able to do it. But uh, we're going to be talking about parents' patria. And this is how most governments are based on the law of the father. That's a great white father they used to call uh, the American government, etc. Parents patria is still in, still find the phrase in the U.S. codes, parents patria. And the reality is, is that we make the state our father because the state provides the benefits, the state provides permission, it provides license for us to do the things that we do. So this used to be done through the father, which has now been demonized by a large portion of the society is that that's the patriarchy. All these people who are complaining about the vile patriarchy of men, they want the state to be their patriarch, the patriarch of their society, giving them free education. I mean, if you came from a wealthy family, your father would be the one that paid your tuition. I paid the tuition when I went to college. I went and uh, worked, saved my money, got a scholarship, and went to college. Uh, my dad would have paid, but uh, I was kind of independent, like my own father. When, when he uh, came out of the service after World War II, he went to college himself. He supported his family with a part-time job while he was going to college. And it's just in the nature of our family, we've passed this down from generation to generation to carry our own weight. But there are other generations that are going around saying, no, let's let the government take care of us. Let the government provide for us. And that's really not the way it should be. That was not a big thing back in the 1776. People were, there wasn't this giant welfare program. Although this idea of the government being the welfare of the people has come and gone to greater and greater degrees over the centuries. And we show this with the Free Church Report, with the cover of the Free Church Report, which is back, is a painting of a woman who lived back in, in 1060s, 1090s, who was against attacks being imposed upon the people to support the welfare of society. At that time, the welfare of society was entirely provided by society through free will offerings, through what was called the church in those days. And the the king, because this was at the time of the rise of the kings, 
We'd been a thousand years since the fall of Jerusalem, and now there was a rise of kings in in England and Germany and France. We mentioned all this this morning, and they wanted to impose a tax on the people to pay this tax, and the funds were to go to the church because the church was still taking care of, you know, widows and orphans, etc., and needy of their society. But now they were going to tax money from the people. This was the beginning of the Corbin of the Pharisees was being accepted by the church that this was okay by some members of the church. Some members of the church said, no, this is not okay and stood against it. This particular woman stood against it. And she said that she would take her own wealth, strip herself of her own wealth, and use it to pay the money to the church to build, you know, hospitals and schools and libraries, etc., for the education of the people. And uh, she did so. Her name was Lady Godiva. She did not strip off her clothes. She stripped off her wealth. And her husband, which is actually her second husband, her first husband had died, agreed to do the same with his own wealth. And they were very saintly people. And uh, there was no riding naked through town. A hundred years after her death, somebody who wanted to defame the idea of living by faith, hope, and charity and wanted the government to be allowed to tax the people to make them wealthy, who were, these were monks and ministers in the church who were selfish. Now, there were many good ones, but there were others who were more selfish and wanted that extra money coming in from the state. And so they put down the memory of Lady Godiva, so that you don't even know the story anymore. That tactic is still used in the modern media all the time, distracting you from the real truth. And we talked about several different ways, QA, non, and, and the, the white knights, and, and uh, the watermarked uh, ballots, and all these kinds of things. Now, some of the, there may be some truth in some of these things, but there's very likely a lot of these are distractions, so you don't actually do what you need to do. Now, if you were doing, if everybody who claimed to be a Christian was actually a Christian in Oregon, they would already have a network, and they could have done away with the corrupt government that is now overwhelming the government of Oregon. We're now going through another shutdown from a lady posing as the governor. She's not the legal governor. She should have been removed and arrested by the state troopers and taken out of the governor's office and, and charged as a felon. But nobody had the courage to do it. Nobody had the morals to do it in government. And the people were so disorganized, so chaotic, because they had not come together in that free assembly, which we talked about this morning. This is what Shiva says, that you needed this uh, self-organizing uh, system, network. I, I saw an interesting thing. Somebody sent me something from the Daily Wire and uh, the email that it came from was called the Living Network. <laughs> the Daily Wire has a lot of ideas that are very close to the kingdom. They have some ideas that are a long ways away. But uh, the, the idea is the conversation would behoove us to get down and emphasize those points that are strong towards the kingdom and expose those areas that are weak in the kingdom principles, uh, not simply cast them all out. I would like to bring everybody together, but I cannot compromise the truth in order to do it. So what what I was going to talk about is back in the, in the 1700s, from the late 1770s until about the 1820s, per capita consumption of alcohol in America rose dramatically to about four or five times per person what it is today. That's a lot of alcohol. Everybody took a swig from a jug. Teachers, preachers, children, they called it hard cider, but it was nothing like cider that you buy in the grocery store. This was hard alcohol, and most people were in a that virtual haze by noontime. The social consequences were predictable. This was bad. Fewer and fewer people attended church. Spiritual devotion waned. Social problems uh, proliferated. 
there was a, a great deal of unwed mothers around. Children were often still taken into families, but there was actually a need for orphanages, not simply from the death of uh, families, but because of the breakdown in society. So this was going on between about 1770 and 1820s. Part of this was there was a great deal of prosperity, but there were also problems at the same time. But here, uh, written, illegitimate births were rampant during the early 1800s, uh, wrote uh, Tom Phillips in his book, Revival Signs. Alcohol, the drug of the day, was destroying families and wrecking futures. Thomas Paine was proclaiming that Christianity was dead. You hear everybody proclaiming that God is dead. Certainly the body of the faith appeared to be in a coma. Yet even uh, church roles were shrinking in greed. Sensual, uh, sensuality and family breakdowns were becoming more widespread. America was about to experience a great spiritual revival. Now there's been revivals all the time. They tried to have revivals in the 30s and 40s. But they were not spiritual revivals. They were emotional revivals. And this is what we're seeing a great deal on the left. A great deal of emotionalism. But not not reasonableism. And I say reasonable rather than rationalism. Because of the fact that God is reasonable. If you think he's not, you probably don't understand what's going on. But... Uh, America started this second great awakening in one community after another. People began to wake up from their moral and spiritual slumber as though saying, if we, we're going to have self-governing nation, it must be occupied by self-governing citizens. You cannot have an organized society, self-organizing society, without self-organizing people. One of the things that uh, has come out with Jordan Peterson in his 12 rules, uh, is this idea of organizing yourself. Before you want to fix the world, learn to make your bed. Learn to, le- learn to apply yourself. Learn to organize your own thoughts, your own values. Find out what is really a value and stand by those values. Don't associate with people that want to take you away from the values, the bad companies, so to speak. I mean, if they want to, Come your way, fine, but you do not compromise and go their way of immorality and unrighteousness. We see that kind of awakening come with the popularity of people like Jordan Peterson and some of the other people that are outspoken where they're, they're bringing in a reasonable view in an, a chaotic world. We have the chaotic world because the church abandoned again Back in the 1920s, 1930s especially, 1940s even more so, they are banning the principles of Christ and putting in their place substitute principles that they call Christianity. But when we actually look at the text of the Bible and the words of Christ, we see, wait a minute, these people are doing the absolute opposite of what Christ said to do, and they are totally neglecting what Christ said uh, to do. And so they're either doing the opposite or neglecting what Christ said to do. The first public health movements in America back in this 30s and 40s of 1800s were launched not by the government, but by citizen activists such as uh, Lyman Beecher as one. There's actually a lot of others that I would even recommend higher than that. But the reality is it's self-organizing. It's not really the leaders. It's the individuals who are willing to do it. So uh, pastors and community leaders were opening elementary and secondary schools. How were they doing that? With putting uh, elementary and secondary schools on the tax rolls? No, through the free will offerings of the people. So the pastors were only able to do this return to righteousness Because the people were returning to righteousness and sharing what they produced to provide education, elementary and secondary education, long before public schools. I mean, sometimes people refer to some of these early public schools as public schools. But if you look back at the books, the vast majority of the funds that made them possible were free will offerings. And most people did not go to public school. They went to either private school or they were home taught or they had tutors or governesses or whatever. 
but they were, most people, it wasn't until the early 1900s that most people were attending public school. Yet, we've talked about this before, the illiteracy in America was more than it is today. After a hundred years or more of public education, it's been about 90 years that uh, we've had more people in public school than taught outside of public school. Because it wasn't until 1910 that uh, we moved from, you know, like uh, 30 or 40 percent of the people in public schools to up to 50 percent. So you went to 51 percent of the people attending school and learning to read and write were doing so in public schools. And even then the public schools were heavily privately funded. That was in 1910. So that has been... Well, actually, it's been 110 years, not 90 years, since then. And now so many people are educated in public schools, yet our literacy rate is way below what it was in 1910. And I can show you school books from 1910, 1920, 1930. I have a whole collection where high school graduates can't solve fifth grade math problems today. Uh, I mean, they, they, high school graduates today cannot solve fifth grade problems from the 1930s and 40s. Why is that? Well, they've dumbed down. This is also during the time that uh, Thomas uh, Gallader, uh opened his school for the deaf and the McGuffey Reader, the eclectic reader, was established. Not that these are perfect things, but this was all being done by people like the Young Women's Christian Association and everything. It was private associations that were bringing about this renaissance in America. When Tocqueville, Alexis de Tocqueville, came over here back about 1831, he thought, upon my arrival in the United States, the religious aspect of the country was the first thing that struck my attention. And the longer I stayed there, the more perceived the great political consequences resulting from this new state of things. In France, I had almost always seen the spirit of religion and the spirit of freedom marching in opposite directions, but in America, I found they were intimately united and that they reigned in common over the same country. What are they talking about? We, this is one of, this is what made America great. Is that we were building schools, we're offering secondary and, and college educations without student loans to anybody who could keep up the grades, any race, any creed. There, there were, there were as many, <laughs> uh, college educated Indians in America at one time as that there were whites that were college educated. Yeah, that's, that's actually was a statistic that came out years and years ago in research done. Now, I don't know if it's 100% accurate, but even to, to make that claiming that there was an awful lot of Indians. And I, in reading accounts of Indians, some Indians complained about this because they would send the chief's son off to get this education to learn in the ways of the whites because the whites were like people from outer space. They had these guns and they had equipment and they had science and they had these giant boats you know we're running around birch bark canoes but their complaint was that their sons came back from these universities knowing a lot of information but not knowing a lot about how to survive in the wilderness they were pretty incompetent at, at surviving in the wilderness to one degree or another this wasn't a vast problem because a lot of them kept their knowledge but uh their homeland knowledge so there were an awful lot of college-educated Indians. Some of them rose to be chiefs. They were very smart in a lot of different things and uh, trained in a lot of different things. They were able to do this because of the fact that education was almost free to anybody. Now, it took a lot of work. A lot of people had to uh, study and uh, and work and sacrifice to build these schools, to build these universities. And when you graduated... 
You didn't have a student loan you had to pay off, but you had to come back as an alma mater. And as you became successful, you would donate money so that they could bring other kids into the school. And the kids who came into the school who didn't have the money but were sponsored by scholarships appreciated those scholarships. They knew that they were being put there by at the expense of others. This was a different spirit in America. It wasn't like you owe me an education. We choose to sacrifice to give. My own grandfather, who, who became wealthy by the time he was 45 years of age, walking behind a team of mules planting wheat in North Dakota, <laughs> he went out, this is great-great-grandfather, he went out and put numerous kids through college at his own expense. He would find kids in the local community that were hard workers and smart and bright, and he would send them on to college. And he would pay their tuition, and they were appreciative of it. We don't do that anymore. We we do the exact opposite of what Lady Godiva said, the exact opposite of what Jesus Christ said, the exact opposite of what... Moses and John the Baptist said, which was we were to take care of one another through faith, hope, and charity. We now do it through taxation. That is going to degenerate society. We knew this 150 years before Christ. We knew it in the days of Plutarch. The greatest destroyers of liberty are the granters of gifts, gratuities, and benefits. Especially benefits granted at the expense of your neighbor. Because it divides your society. This message is your salvation because this is the message of Christ. And this is what we have to turn around and follow. But we're not doing that. We're not turning around and following the ways of righteousness. From 1901 to about 1909, Roosevelt sought to expand individual opportunities and strengthen individual control over personal business and political affairs as well as to increase America's economic and military influence in the world. Not necessarily... The economic influence, great. Military influence, that was dangerous. It was the beginning of the military-industrial complex. But it was the beginning, and it always seems pretty good at the beginning, but later on it proves to be not necessarily such a good idea. But anyway, that's the way that, that people win. And uh, so we had this, one of the places that this pendulum swung, uh, Sunday school movement in Chicago to provide moral instruction for more than 1,500 poor urban street children was a, a part of the, the programs that were coming about. He opened a, a Bible college. Uh, when I say he, I'm talking about Dwight Moody. And I don't necessarily agree with Dwight Moody, but this idea of charitably offering education and support and health care through free will offerings of the people, yeah, it helps the poor, but it also helps the people who give. Because now they're seeking the kingdom of God and the righteousness of God to do this by charity rather than by force. When we started accepting the idea that we could do it by force rather than charity, we abandoned Christ. And we were made blind so that we could not see the unrighteousness of our policies. And our policies are our rituals. That That's our rights. That's how we do things. Rituals and rights and policies are the same thing from different venues. It's a different terminology. Uh, back in uh, those days, there were a lot of William and Catherine Booth who founded the Salvation Army in the United States in the 1880s. And the women took a particular interest in the needs of those who found themselves financially and morally bankrupt. And in 1913, more than 500 urban rescue missions were operating in the United States and Canada. The Salvation Army has been recently demonized, and, and maybe there's some reason for that, but the reality is they have helped millions upon millions of people through charity. But this is the same thing that the monk was doing a hundred years after the death of Lady Godiva. They demonized the truly charitable people, 
and try to make them out as bad so that they can be self-righteous. Same thing they're doing with all your heroes. They did it with uh, Thomas Jefferson, who was not a perfect man by any means. He wanted to free his slaves many times, but he was Ill- it was illegal for him to free his slaves until he was 100% out of debt, which he was constantly struggling to get out of debt to, so he could free his slave. And he tried to pass a law twice that allowed him to free his slaves, even though he still had some debt. But he wasn't allowed to do so. But nobody's telling you that in the 1619 Project, because they want to destroy your heroes. Everything good about them. Nobody erased those statues. We've talked about this before. Because of the shortcomings of the people who they raised the statues of. Not, I'm not a big statue fan, but I'm certainly not a fan of tearing them down. But they, they've even done this with your Marvel heroes. <laughs> they had them all failing and collapsing and, and uh, degenerating. But the reality is, is they don't want you to think that you can do this without government. They don't want you to think that you can have a free society without government. Well, you can if you govern yourselves. If you go back to a moral lifestyle. And nobody's perfectly moral. I'm not perfectly moral. I don't claim to be. But I claim to be striving for that morality and that righteousness. And that's what we should all be doing. The idea is the means of creating a new social security system for young people expanding medical savings accounts for all Medicare recipients and creating educational savings accounts and vouchers to give parents more control over their children go to school and what values they are being taught is not really the answer. Although this article goes on to suggest that it is. The the answer is, is that those free associations and of course that's what the kingdom of God is composed of. We were to sit down into ten family groups. Those ten family groups would link themselves together with a network of ministers and to cover, make ten families of ten, or ten families of, uh, ten of ten families, and it would be hundreds and thousands. Each of these groups are free associations. They're not, they're not incorporations. It's all free will offerings. And this would change America. But until we're willing to see the truth of the ways of Christ, we're not going to change America. Because until men change, governments will not change. But anyway, join us on the network at hisholychurch.org or preparingyou.com and we will discuss this farther. Until then, peace on your house and may God be with you. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net.